0: But my name is Nick Nye, and um, I'm just super excited to be here this morning and to be able to talk about Acts and jump in the book of Acts with you uh, as a church. Um, If I haven't gotten to meet you or you don't know who I am, um, my name is Nick, and my family and I um, have been connected with Substance since its inception, since the very beginning. We lived in Columbus, Ohio, um, and planted a church called Veritas, and then uh, about Three years ago, my wife and I and our family moved to Manhattan, New York City. And actually, I, was, I preached here a little bit before. It was about three years ago before we moved. And um, Ohio is like one of those places, it's like a black hole. It just sucks you back in. And so our family um, just uh, actually about five months ago moved back to Columbus. Um, one, of the, one of the roles that I get to uh, play in the city is uh, there's, there's a group of—there's pa- a ton of pastors and ministry leaders and just a lot of momentum going on in the city of Columbus, where there's a lot of unity and desire to work together to serve the city better, to reach the city with the gospel more. And, um, and so they asked me to come back and help facilitate that, lead that—which um, is a work that we were doing with Veritas in Columbus. And so uh, we moved back and it was really cool. And our experience in New York City was really amazing. Of course, it's insanely hard, but when you get to eat that kind of food, um, the best food in literally the world, um, it's hard to leave. But I am glad to, to be back. I'm especially glad to be here with you and to be in this part of Acts. And, and one of the things that is just extraordinary about this passage is, is that it is completely ordinary. Um, it's not like one of these epic parts of the book of Acts um, that usually uh, a guest preacher would come in and talk about because uh, it's very ordinary. But if you're willing to actually look Underneath that ordinariness, there is an incredible work that's happening. And so if you have a Bible and you can open to Acts chapter 11, I want to read from verses 19 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many of people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let me pray. Lord, We're so grateful to be gathered as a church, and as Scott said earlier, Lord, would this be a moment set apart from the rest of our week? Would this be a a holy moment, a moment to actually commune with you, with the saints, with other people? Lord, would that be a powerful testimony to what you're doing in us? God, I know that there's a lot um, a baggage that, that many have come in. Many have come in with. I pray now that we may lay those at your feet to hear you and and hear from you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, the last part, the last phrase um, that uh, you kind of left with last week in um, the earlier in chapter eleven in verse eighteen, it says they glorified God, saying. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. These are the last words, and really, these, th- that phrase sets the tone for the rest of the book of Acts. That one verse sets the tone for everything that's happened. It gives us a little vision of what this real life, flesh and blood transformation of it and a transformed people look like. So, All of God's people are being changed. The church is radically shifting, and you know how hard it is to change anything in the church, right? It is incredibly difficult, but what we're seeing before our eyes right here in chapter 11 is a massive shift where now the Gentiles are being fully grafted and accepted into the church with equal standing in leadership and sonship and privilege and access to God and worship as the Jewish Christians would. So now Jew and Gentile Standing together, this beautiful church is emerging out of this, and this is important to get. This is important to start things off with because, again, it sets the rest of the tone for the book of Acts, but it also is important to understand the rest of chapter 11. It's Luke, who's the author of Acts. It's him showing that God has kicked open the door for all to see that God— God's people don't exist in an ethnic heritage through the Jews, but a Jesus people. It's not just in a Jewish life, but it's in Jesus life. And that is really important um, because this declaration is screaming to the wider world, you can come, come in, come be a part of this. Come be a part of this beautiful uh, this beautiful tapestry that God is building, this vision that God has of the kingdom here on earth. This is God's plan, and this is how his economy is working. And when the church can experience this kind of dynamic, when we can experience Jew and Gentile, slave, free, man and woman, all coming under Jesus Christ in the church, when we see that happening, the world looks at that and looks and sees, it just makes the gospel unstoppable. It just makes the spread of the gospel unstoppable. It makes the beauty of the gospel unstoppable. And so um, today, I want to look at our passage, and I want to see two points of how the gospel is expanding. Two, pla- two points from our passage to see how this is expanding. One is that it's through anonymous missionaries. And then Uh, I'm going to touch on chapter two. I know I'm not supposed to, but it's just too good because it it fits really well. I want to look at chapter 12 and see that the gospel is actually being opposed by rulers and religious leaders who feel threatened by this power. Um, So can I just, I know because I'm new and I know you guys, I mean, it says right here, gospel centered. So you guys know the gospel and I'm assuming you know, it. but I'm just going to throw out just a little glimpse of it. Just so we're all on the same page of just remembering, what is the gospel? If this is the thing that's spreading and this is the thing that's catching fire everywhere, what is it? Well, the gospel means good news. It's a declaration of good news that is being thrown out. It's like these heralds going out with a newspaper and saying, good news. You guys will never believe what happened. You guys will never believe what's, what's good. And they're going around and they're telling the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. And he's setting you, he's setting all of you free to worship God and to spread his joy and his renewal of, of hope all throughout the world. It's the message that is spreading and the message that is being known, and it's changing the culture. It's turning the world upside down. It's a kingdom of God, this new kingdom of God that is being planted in new people all over the world. So I don't want to assume that you know that, but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So let's dig in to these points. To this chapter and a little bit of chapter 12. Look at, look at uh, chapter, 19, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verses 19. Now, I wanted to give this the heading of anonymous missionaries, because to see the gospel go out like big shot names, uh, through big shot names like Paul or Peter or Stephen or Mary or uh, Barnabas, you know, a lot of times we look at those people and we're like, yeah, I'm not quite like that. That's not me. I'm not the guy who's going to stand up in front of hundreds of people at Passover and preach the resurrection of Christ. I'm not going to be the finger pointer that says, you crucified Christ. Maybe that's you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, that's not me. So what we see here and what Luke wants us to see is that The big expansion of the church, the radical transformation of the culture and of the city happens by ordinary people, ordinary people that are passionate about speaking about Jesus wherever they go. Did you hear me say ordinary? I hope you did. Um, And if, if you're a note taker, can you write this phrase down? Two words gospel intentionality. Because see, what's happening is these are normal people living their life with gospel intentionality. So everywhere they went, whether it was work, whether it was the store, whether it was to a friend's house, hanging out with a neighbor, they lived life with a gospel intentionality. They weren't just passive They weren't just floating along. They weren't just, uh, you know, keeping it surface level. They were just being themselves with gospel intentionality. Now, most again, most of you might have a hard time with the Peter type who boldly stands up in front of people. Uh, Maybe you can't relate to Mary at all. She's the mother of Jesus right? Traveling around with her son, a miracle worker, and then supporting the expansion of the church. Mary's very involved in all of this. Maybe all of those kinds of thing, those things freak you out a little bit, but as we study this, you should be able to see yourself in this story as a faithful showing up and living for Jesus as an everyday missionary. Again, gospel intentionality, now Luke is showing us how this is happening. There's two ways how this is happening. These new Christians are traveling for work, so some of them are going just uh, for work to different cities. Um, but the other thing um, is we see is that they are going because there's a great persecution. In the church, there's some persecution that's happening, um, and so they are getting pushed around back to their hometowns, their home countries, or or to a new place, and they're doing that, and they're not saying, "Well, you know, Christianity didn't work, so we're done." No, they're saying, "No, we just can take this as an opportunity to go to another town and share the gospel." So through these two means, more and more people are becoming followers of Jesus, both geographically and culturally. Now, geographically, it's spreading as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, this is in um, like modern-day Lebanon um, today. So uh, Acts 1:8, Luke really sets the entire uh, scene of Acts as saying the gospel is going to spread out. It's going to go far, he says, in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Luke now is going back and he's underlining, he's saying, guys, guess what? This is happening. It's, it's actually happening. It's spreading. It's going throughout. It's moving all around. Luke is underlining this reality. Um, and, and, and what we see is these witnesses, these people are preaching and teaching and living out the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it's also happening culturally, not just geographically, but culturally. Now, uh, it says now not long ago you you um, heard about Cornelius. This happened um, earlier in chapter uh, earlier in chapter ten. You heard about Cornelius, this Gentile ruler who was converted to Christianity. And now the gospel is spreading intentionally, both to Jews and Gentiles. So there's a cultural transformation going on. I talked about this briefly. There is no going back to a Christianity that is um, just for for Jews. It's not like it's for all people. Luke is showing this and underlining this once again through the city of Antioch. It's like. Luke is saying, hey, hey, wait, hang on. You have to understand where this is happening. This is, this is happening in Antioch. This is one of the most diverse cities in the, the modern world, in the ancient world. Um, it was one of the most cosmopolitan cities. So it had Jews, Persians, Indians, Latins, Chinese, and it all fell under the Roman Empire. So they were all Roman citizens seen equally by the government's eyes. And the city was large. It was 500,000 people. At the time. So when we read that the gospel was spreading, we know that it was spreading across many people groups and being brought back into places like China and India. Okay, so we see um, Luke is telling us this gospel wildfire is started, it's going. It's flying around everywhere, and it's being led by these anonymous missionaries spreading Jesus' message, and it grows so much. It gets so big that, um, th- that it g- the word gets back to the Christian headquarters in Jerusalem, right? So the headquarters knows, and they're like, guys, uh, this is spreading so much. Maybe we should send in the big guns. Let's send Peter in. No, they're like, no, forget Peter. He's too... too uh, Central, You know, he's too narcissistic, maybe. Maybe too, uh, too charismatic. I don't know. They're just like, no, we need to send somebody in who's just going to keep the flame going. So they decide to send in Barnabas. In Acts 8.14, we read... Um, Uh, We read news. Actually, got back to the Samaritans. Um, They were also they were also surrendering their lives to Jesus. This movement um, was spreading and growing. These normal people sharing the gospel all along the way. That they decide to send Barnabas in, and it's said that Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, he's like a big heart kind of guy. He's not coming in with wild vision. I'm gonna, we're going to take over the city. We're going we're gonna to build all this strategy and this kind of stuff. No, he's, he's not that kind of person that we can gather. He's the perfect one to send and just love people well and just saying, you guys are doing an amazing job. Keep doing it. Keep going. Keep. He's just going to love the people well, and he's going to shepherd them in their faith. and He just wants to fan into flame what they are already doing, what the normal people are already doing. And I love that imagery. I just love that. As a pastor, I, I just would say my, my heart would be just in flames seeing the people of God doing all the work of God, and my job was not to just be pulling, come on, guys, we've got to reach our neighbors, we've got to talk to people about Jesus, but just to say, uh, keep it going, keep it going, you're doing a great job. And that's what Barnabas was sent to do when he arrived into Antioch. He saw for himself the grace of God, and it says in verse 23, he was glad. I mean, again, knowing my own heart, it's just like, wow, what a breath of fresh air. It's not like American Christians where you're like, guys, God, we got to get moving here. You got to... You got to keep going. No, he's just coming. He saw their personal conversions up close, and he saw how their lives were being changed. He saw their repentance of sin and their hope in Christ, and so began his pastoral work of calling them to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. Keep doing what you're doing. Now, let me point out what this means. Because I was, as I was thinking and studying about Barnabas' call, I definitely felt burdened by my own ministry and my own personal hopes for the church. Now, I know I'm not your pastor, um, but sometimes I feel like Ronnie and I, we function very much on the same page, which is why we're such close friends. And, but I know Ronnie and I know Jeff and the other pastors would feel this burden as Barnabas does. Many of you grew up here in this environment, around here. You know how to play the role of Christian. You know how to go to church. You know you're supposed to go to church on Sundays, um, and you've done this for so long. You've you've prayed before meals. You've uh, maybe picked up your Bible sometimes during the week or. Um, listen to the new Christian worship. You know how to do the, the Christian thing, for so, and you've done it for so long that you do not see how small or, or weak your faith has become. So Barnabas is coming along, and he's pushing the people of God to go all in, He's not he's not always having to come in and say, "Get moving, guys. You're you're slacking and that kind of thing." No, he is coming along and he's just saying, "Keep going. Keep going." But I think if he were to come here into our American Western culture, he might come in and say, "Listen. Let me encourage you this way. You've played Christianity for a long time. I need you to go all in. Look at these Christians." these weren't superheroes. These weren't massive, um, charismatic personalities. It was wild and, and, and just these were just ordinary people living with gospel intentionality. You need to go all in. You need to go all in with Christ. Don't be weakened. Don't go through the motions. Don't water things down. And he would say, as I want to say, God wants more for you. And not just more for you, he wants more for your neighbor. He wants more for the person you work next to in a cubicle or in the shop next to you, wherever it is. He wants more for them. He wants a zeal and a passion and a conviction. He wants you to go all in. Read this in verse 24. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And because his heart was um, that his his heart was what it was, because his heart was so full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, he was such a good man that this new church in Antioch, they, their heart was full of God. It was full of blessing full of joy and hope, knowing that the people around them were filled with faith. It just became this movement filled with hope and love and joy. Now, Barnabas, um, because of this, because he's just fanning the flames, what what happened? He's calling people to go on, keep going, remain faithful. The the flame got bigger and bigger. More and more people started to follow Christ. And so um, he needed help. And so what does he do? He calls a friend, a new friend maybe, named Saul. We later will know him as Paul. Saul was Paul's Greek uh, or as Hebrew name. Um, so he calls um, Saul. Um, but he saw uh, Barnabas Saul, you have to remember, he Saul, Saul, I know that's kind of this is really confusing. <laughs> He saw him as a, saw his conversion happen. He heard about it. Everybody knew at this point that Saul had become um, a Christian and that he had stopped persecuting um, these Christians and actually has become one. And so Barnabas, he's got that big heart. He's like, You know what I need right now? I need Saul to come in and help me pastor. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna have him walk alongside me in this, and I'm gonna have him um, help me in this. So he spends a year with them. They they take a year together in Antioch, and um, we don't know what Saul was like at the time. We don't know what really what was happening. He's kind of a a backdrop of the story. Yet Um, he might just be just shutting up, sitting there, and just saying, "Barnabas, teach me how to pastor." Obviously, I know how to kill Christians. I was pretty good at that. I know how to teach the Torah. I'm good at that, but I, I just want to be a, like you, Barnabas. I don't know. He may be in that space. Um, learning to be a disciple, but Barnabas wants Saul. We, we know that. Verse 25, we see that he wants him, and as they join forces to pastor people for a whole year, we see in verse 26 that it was in uh, the church in Antioch that disciples officially got their name as Christians. You know, it's funny how they just functioned without actually a title. They just were Christians before Christianity was cool, (laughs) before it was branded, right? And as the name is solidified... There came a chance for the church to shine. An opportunity came in verses 27 through 30 to shine even brighter. Luke ties in that there was a prophecy from Jerusalem to Antioch that a great famine was about to come. Now, if I was Luke, I'd be like, ooh, a prophecy. Like, that's different. I want to know more about the prophecy. But Luke's like, no, no, no. Forget forget about the prophecy. That's not the important part here. It is important, but not the important part. I want you to focus on what the prophecy is. So he's highlighting the subject. Luke isn't interested in, in the prophecy itself. He was highlighting what was happening. There was a generosity need by the church of Judea. A prophecy came that there was going to be a famine and they needed help. And so the church responded with relief. The church in Antioch was like, great, we would love to help. But remember this, this is really cool and really important. Uh, This was a mostly multi-ethnic Gentile church, and who was asking for help? A mostly Jewish church in Judea. You know, we read something about this in, in Romans. Maybe some of you might remember this verse. It's a very obscure verse. Verse fifteen, verse twenty seven chapter fifteen, verse twenty-seven says, For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they also or they ought to also be of service to them in material blessing. So what's happening is now the Gentile church, who was once always put down by the Jews, who was always once put on the back burner saying, you can't have God, you can't have access to God like we, now the Gentiles are staying, stepping up and saying, not only do we have God, but we're going to provide for the Jews, the Jewish Christians. Do you understand how significant that is? How beautiful that is, actually. How their hearts have changed so much that they're willing to give their money to help a uh, Jewish Christians out? This is incredible. And look, these are, I'm just going to keep reminding you, these are ordinary Christians. Anonymous, working, full-time jobs, missionaries. They were multicultural. They were persevering. They were all in Christians. They also put their money where their mouth is. And it was noticed, and it was felt. So much good was happening by the ordinary means of these Christians. But every good story has an antagonist, and, and that's why I really wanted to rope in chapter 12. I, I, I wanted to make sure that we saw that this isn't always rainbows and butterflies. The story doesn't end happily ever after. That would be great, right? Right? Look, just everything worked out perfectly. The gospel's advancing. Disciples are being made. This is good. But Christianity is much more difficult and much more challenging. Well, um, there, were those, there were many who really opposed, and I mean really opposed, and so Luke is going to say, okay, now let's stop. Remember what happened. Remember the persecution. There's always setbacks in Christianity. There's always setbacks in the church. I mean, I have personally pastored long enough to know there's certainly I'm certainly no stranger to setbacks and challenges and opposition and heartache in various forms. But there were some huge setbacks for the early church that Luke writes about here, and it disrupts this sweet movement of the gospel. I'm just going to touch on it cuz I know next week it's going to be addressed much more, but First, we see James was killed at the hands of Herod the king in chapter 12. I didn't read it, but you can open your Bible and look there. James was killed at the hand of of Herod the king. Herod was a tyrannical narcissist who loved to worship himself, and he was drunk on his own power, and he loved the Jews because the Jews loved him. So Herod embraced this posture. He saw a political opportunity and used the Jewish, Jewish populace to gain even more power. And from that place, he sought another apostle, Peter. I mean, the Jews, and I'm not saying Jewish Christians, the Jews at this place, at this point, they wanted to get rid of this Christianity thing. So kill Peter, kill James, get rid of them all. They're happy. And so they're cheering Herod on, get rid of these people. This is a huge deal to the early church because they're all seeing, they're seeing James, one of their leaders, their founders, taken out, and they're seeing Peter arrested, two of their top leaders. But Luke quickly gives us hope in this trouble by telling us of a miracle that leads to Peter's freedom in verses 6 through 19. This is, I'm setting all this up to give you one point, really. What we see is the early church earnestly praying for Peter's release. Some miracle for God. This wouldn't be the first time the church had to pray in this way, uh, as this isn't the first time Peter and other leaders had been arrested. They've been arrested before, Peter's been here before. The church has been here before, but in Acts chapter 5, we read that the high priests had gotten the apostles arrested, and God miraculously helps them escape. So the early church had gone through this, but they prayed. They still prayed, believing God could do it again, and he must do it again. Now, I want to highlight one word here in verse 5 that is important to pick up. Chapter 12, verse 5. Let me read it. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. One word I want to point out, in the Greek, it's ektanos, which means fervently or earnestly. Just highlight, if you're under, Bible underliner, go for it, earnest. That same word is used by Luke in another one of his writings as he's describing the intense and fervent prayers that Jesus made before he went to the cross in Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I want to just point this out because we have got to pray with earnesty, fervently, passionately, consistently. The early church believed with their whole heart that God was sovereign and his hand was powerful and that God can work despite opposition. The the opposition might come. They might have to get spread out, but that's okay. We're just going to use that to spread out the gospel and share with more people. The the persecution might come with arresting and, and killing their top leaders. That's okay. We've got tons more leaders. We need to pray and believe God to his work, uh, he will work in spite of the opposition. So what we see in this little picture are two powers colliding. Two powers colliding, and when these two powers meet up, each of them pick up their weapon of choice. You following me here? The sword of Herod is one weapon, or the prayer of the church is the other weapon. So listen, in opposition, we are called to turn to prayer, because what comes of the church's prayer is Peter's rescue by an angel. He's free. So Peter, he's free. A miracle happens. He heads over to the church, um, he he knocks on their doors, and um, at, at the gate there's a young girl named Rhoda. We read about. You can just hear the story, you don't, you, or follow along. I know we didn't read it, but hear it. Peter's voice calls out of the front, and and she gets so excited. This girl Rhoda, she gets so excited that she forgets to let Peter in. She's like. I can't believe it. Our prayers were answered. So she runs in. Peter's still standing outside, Um, and and God had just done this miracle. He answered this prayer, and I love the humor in this. I know it's not our kind of humor. You know, this isn't Dave Chappelle or anything like that, but there's a little bit of humor here of of, uh, the girl forgetting that Peter's there. It's like the miracle became so big that it didn't even matter who was there. It didn't matter. God did such an amazing thing that it didn't matter who was there. Um, but it says in verse 17, the Lord brought him out. So she, she is so stoked about what God did. Peter was left standing. It was God's miracle, not Peter. And it was his, uh, it was his glory in it all. Now, though it was a joyful experience, it, stay, it still came at a horrible cost. I mean, uh, verse 19 shows us that the guards were held accountable to Peter's escape and were sentenced to death by penalty of Herod's law. The church felt this sobering reality. They they felt this pain that Peter had to carry many sleepless nights, imagining, probably even knowing some of those guards by name, asking their names and getting to know them, and knowing that that, that terrible tragedy happened. So many highs and so many lows, but, we, but God's justice was at work because verse 19 through 23, we read read, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, that's Herod, down, because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, that's not a verse that's read too much in uh, these days, right? He was eaten by worms. It's like justice rolled like a river. Herod's death is not only in the scripture here, but in history books from Josephus. Um, Josephus describes it actually in much more gory detail. Um, But both Luke and Josephus, they saw his death. They saw that his death was because he glorified himself instead of the Lord. But, verse 24 says, the word of God increased and multiplied. It still kept going. So I, sh- I, I dabbled a little bit in chapter 12 because I want you to see that where the power came from, where all of this arose, was from prayer, communion with God, oneness with Him. And here's where I want to land today. As we see the church maturing in geography and culturally, as we've seen Barnabas invest in Antioch, as we see the church face opposition, and as we see God's justice in the face of this opposition to the church, there are uh, three simple responses from the church that I think and I hope are divine calls for you substance as a church. Now, I know none of these are breathtaking, mind-blowing, or anything like that. So you may leave here and be like, yeah, that was it. I was hoping for something a little catchier and I don't know, more marketable or something. But this is really simple. What we see from this is several things. First, that we're called to speak and to serve. You notice Barnabas' attitude as he came into the movement of the gospel? He came to serve people, not to be a consumer of the city not to just consume of people, but to serve them. Now, some of you here are thinking, man, I am, I'm really important. I've got, st- I got staff, I've got a building, uh, or I've got a brand to lift up. We all have this attitude of, I must be served. But look to the incarnation of Jesus, his death on the cross, God who is both the lion who conquers and the lamb who is slain. He serves you. Are you receiving his service? If you have, you'll, you'll, you'll know nothing else but service. The second thing I want to call, uh, call you to is to be ordinary. God may not be calling you into a full-time missions work or pastoral ministry of some kind of super Christian role, but you can usher in deep transformation and even revival. Just living... Every day with a gospel intentionality, that means loving your neighbor. That means sharing Jesus with your neighbor. And it may be something as simple as you saying, hey, can I tell you um, how my life changed? Or asking your neighbor, how is your soul? How are you doing inside? It's just sharing and, and being ordinary, and having ordinary conversation, telling them how Jesus changed your life and he wants to change their life. You don't need to overthink it. You don't need a seminar and evangelism or read 10 books. Just do it every day. The last thing is prayer. Pray. Pray for the church. Pray for the towns. Pray for Asheville. Ashland, pray for Mansfield. You guys were like, you, oh, you. <laughs> uh I know you're getting mad, but pray for all the towns um, around here. Uh, There's so many. I know there's so many towns around here. Pray for them. Pray for what God is doing in them. There isn't uh, much more to add to that other than just to pray. Look what prayer did in Acts 12. Uh, Lent is a wonderful season Uh, in the church calendar to make that commitment to pray, leading up to Easter, leading up to the cross, to the resurrection. What's, what's powerful about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection and the forgiveness for our sins, is not only that it's good news for our souls and for our uh, satisfaction, for our internal tur- turmoil, but the gospel beckons us to action. It beckons us to go. It beckons us to pick up our cross and move. It's an indicative, an act put upon us, applied to us, but it's also an imperative. It's Jesus commissioning us to go out and live with this gospel intentionality. The early church got this. They got got this. It's why Christians do what we do. It's why Barnabas went to Antioch. It's why Peter went to prison. The gospel is unstoppable, and it's going to happen with or without you. This is the good news. This is the good news for you and it's the good news for your neighbor. And let's pray and ask the Lord to bring that good news to light in our own lives. Let's let's pray. Father, we know that you are doing amazing things and have done amazing things in your church. We may not be seeing revival breaking out yet before us, but I pray that even as we all leave from here this morning, that there would be a spark that might be passed on to another, that might be passed on to another, that would burst into flames and renewal would happen in this town, in our, our, our neighborhoods, in um, our workplaces, God, would it just move forward with an unstoppable power that we saw in Acts chapter 11 and we see in chapter 12? Would it happen in our midst? May we see it so that we may glorify you and that we may rejoice in you. God, keep us from consumeristic Christianity that just says, come on Sunday, sit back, relax, just take it all in. God, ignite us. Ignite us with the flame of the gospel. We pray.